listening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres, as well as the folklore and history that inspired it. This is episode 11 of Haunted Muse, and the third episode in the serial release of my novel, Looking Glass Theory. So, here we go. Looking Glass Theory, Chapter 3. After a liberal dowsing of mosquito spray bought at a nearby shop while she waited for the tour to begin, Nora joined the group on Front Street. The group leader appeared to be a college girl, done up in an elaborate garb, halfway between postmodern steampunk and pirate wench. If I dress up for Halloween this year, Nora thought, surveying her outfit, finding something around this town should be a piece of cake. Nora was intrigued to find the first stop was down the same Paradise Alley where she'd sighted the mirror at Dean's stall in the street market. She pulled up a note-taking app on her phone to record any details that might add color to her sales stories later on. Right here behind us, the girl gestured toward the window that she was standing in front of, is the site of what used to be called the Blue Post, a prime spot for traveling sailors and local men about town to meet up for a pint whilst enjoying the entertainment of dancing girls. She scanned the crowd before continuing. Among other amusements, they could also purchase the favor of ladies of the evening in the rooms upstairs. The entire group glanced skyward, as if by doing so quickly, they might glimpse some long-ago lovely in her lingerie, smoking out of the window. Nora noted this was the same blue post that Dean Goodnight had mentioned in connection with the mirrors. I probably won't be selling those to any preachers, Nora chuckled to herself as the girl continued. Imagine, if you will, the scene through this window. Dozens of beautiful girls in stockings and corsets with long feathered plumes in their hair, entertaining guests all under the watchful eyes of Gallus Meg. Here, the girl paused for effect, awaiting the question she was poised to answer, yet no one said anything. Nora peered through the window, seeing the broken remains of cut-glass chandeliers dangling from the ceiling and several dusty silhouettes that she perceived to be the same shape as the mirrors she'd purchased that afternoon. Waiting for someone else to talk while she typed, Nora finally noticed the lecture had stopped, taking the bait, and feeling a bit as she had in high school when she'd always been the first to speak in class, Nora asked the obvious question. Who was Gallus Meg? Glad you asked, my dear, replied the girl, smiling slightly with relief that she'd been prompted and could continue with her story. Gallus, or Gallows Meg, was the original owner of this establishment. No one knows where she came from, but she stood over six feet tall, and she was stronger than most men. Anytime anyone started to start something, Meg threw them out, and if they roughed up one of her girls, she bit off one of their ears and spat it into a large pickle jar that sat right there on the corner of the bar. Every head in the group turned to the spot where the girl was pointing, visibly trying to imagine the jar full of pickled ears. She had them all in the palm of her storytelling hand at last, and Nora could see she was pleased with herself as she finished. Meg made quite a fortune in her line of work and was nearing the age she thought she might retire. However, one night, as she was locking up, a group of at least half a dozen men were waiting for her. They stole the bag of money she had from that evening and beat her to death right on this very spot. Here, the girl paused to shake her head sadly. But if they thought that would be the end of Gallus Meg, her murderers were all wrong. 
It is said that she can be seen in this alley every night around 3 a.m., the time she was attacked. Also, many men who have frequented the various different bars that have been housed in this building over the years have reported being accosted by her in the bathroom. She seems to enjoy catching rowdy patrons off guard when they least expect it. A whispering round of bathroom jokes circulated through the crowd as the tour continued through several other stops. One was the allegedly haunted house of a doctor, on whose basement table bodies of the dead had been laid out for examination. Another stop was near a street crossing where a wealthy Welshman had been murdered. Curiously, his killers hadn't bothered to steal his horse, which ran home and alerted everyone of his disappearance. Nor had they stolen his distinctive serpent ring, which was found on his skeletal hand several years afterward when a flood washed his body back up out of the sewer and onto the street. Later, the ring had also mysteriously disappeared. The motive had most likely been pure malice or old-fashioned jealousy, the tour guide said, as the man was known for his exquisite manner of dress and was generally well-liked about town. Having trouble with the unusual spelling of his name, Llewellyn, Nora added an emoji with glasses in her notes to remind her to look up more about his story later. The tour's last stop was the St. James Parish Graveyard. Noticing that her phone had just blinked the under 10% warning at her, Nora put it away in her purse. She decided to focus on the final tale without taking any notes. The tour guide had continued to solicit engagement from the crowd and was now getting a quicker response time. Also, the wind was beginning to pick up, a sure sign of the summer thunderstorm rolling in, just as Dean had predicted. Have any of you heard of the concept of a dead ringer? Several in the group murmured, yes. A few replied, no. The tour guide explained the concept for the benefit of those unaware before proceeding. Well, that certainly would have helped poor Mr. Jocelyn here. Perhaps Wilmington's most famous ghost, Samuel Jocelyn, was buried alive right here in this churchyard. Those in the group who'd begun checking their phones for last call times at nearby bars pricked up their ears to listen. Samuel Jocelyn was a successful young lawyer in Wilmington, with a thriving practice among shipping merchants of the town. One night, he and his best friend, Alexander Hostler, were out drinking. They began discussing what happened to a person when they died. Did they simply pass on, or was there some sort of afterlife waiting for them? And, even more importantly, was there any way to communicate with those who had died? The two men swore to one another that whichever of them died first, he would come back and tell the survivor what was on the other side. Unfortunately for Mr. Jocelyn, the opportunity to honor that promise came less than a year later. According to the accounts of several witnesses, Samuel Jocelyn had an argument with his young wife. He took off, riding his horse recklessly through the Holly Shelter Swamp near their plantation house, late on a bitterly cold evening in 1810. Apparently startled by something in the road, the horse fell, pinning Jocelyn underneath and knocking him unconscious. By the time Jocelyn was found by the search party two days later, on March 18th, lying in a frozen pool of water, he had suffered from severe hypothermia, a skull fracture, traumatic brain injury, and a broken back. Although he lingered for several agonizing hours after being found, Samuel Jocelyn eventually slipped into a coma causing doctors attending him to believe 
he had died. Only Samuel Jocelyn was not dead. Embalming was unknown in those days. He was simply buried in a wooden coffin. On the evening after his funeral, Jocelyn appeared to his friend, Alexander Hostler, in the form of an apparition. Pointing an accusing finger at his friend, Jocelyn cried out to him, How could you let them bury me alive when I was not dead? Open my coffin and you will find that I am not in the position in which you placed me. At first, thinking it was a delusion based on the sudden loss of his friend, Hostler later became convinced that Jocelyn was trying to reach him from beyond the grave after the spirit appeared to him for a second night with the same message. Hostler went to Jocelyn's family to attempt to gain permission to exhume his body, but they refused. Now desperately certain he must do something to help his friend, Hostler enlisted the help of another mutual friend, James Toomer. The pair proceeded to dig up Jocelyn's grave after midnight. What they found haunted Hostler for the rest of his life and continues to haunt Wilmington to this day. Samuel Jocelyn was found face down in his coffin, his fingers ground to bloody nubs. In his delirium, he had tried to claw his way out, first up through the lid of the coffin, and then later through the dirt. The crowd had been shocked into silence. Any questions? The tour guide prompted. There were many. Regarding the second medical examination and reburial, about the historical lecture that had revived interest in the story which continued to the present day, the guide provided a plethora of information. However, she admitted that little was known regarding Jocelyn's widow or the fate of his best friend, Alexander Hostler. Some things, she shrugged, are simply lost to history. As the crowd peeled off into couples and small groups, Nora glanced at the clock on her phone again. Not quite 10 p.m. The tour had made a big loop of the historic district downtown, and she was within a few blocks of her office at the Cotton Exchange. With her curiosity piqued about the possible origins of the mirror now sitting in the storage area in her studio, she wanted to stop by quickly before perhaps getting a nightcap and heading home. Rolling up the big loading door at the back of the studio, Nora noticed the wind was really picking up now. She thought about what Dean had said about the air feeling tight before a storm and decided the old lady must be right. It certainly felt like rain. She felt a couple of furniture moving pads and put them under the corners of the mirror so that it slid gently into the front room. The old lady at the warehouse had been stouter than she looked and she had helped Nora get the three mirrors into the Tahoe and tied down. However, this one by itself was simply too unwieldy in shape and length to handle on her own. Nora plugged in her phone to charge and flipped on her desk lamp. After removing the sheet tied around the mirror, Nora could see that, although dusty, it was in surprisingly good shape for its age. No water stains, as with the one that had lain in the basement of her house for who knows how long, although it was definitely silver-backed, too. She could tell by the level of tarnish under the glass that it gave off the color of hematite rather than clear. The glass itself also had tiny air bubbles here and there, tipping Nora off once more to the fact that it was quite old and probably handmade. While still examining the wide, ornately gilded frame for cracks as she dusted it off with a soft cloth, Nora made another note in her phone to look up period paints for the restoration of tiny chips here and there. 
could this really be one of the mirrors that left its imprint along the walls of the blue post? There were no markings to indicate such. A quick flip through the pictures on her phone from the evening's tour told her that it seemed to be the right height and width, which was exceedingly rare considering that the mirror was at least six feet long. Glad she bought the extra insurance at FedEx for the other two, Nora knew that they were worth a fortune. Still, rather than making her usual mental calculations on how much she might have sold the other two for, since she'd already given them away, she focused on the remaining mirror before her. Looking around the room for a place that she might hang it, she noticed an empty wall. Pulling the mirror over on its little felt runners, Nora leaned it back against her desk so that it reflected out toward the door. Crossing her arms and stepping back to appraise the possible effect, Nora smiled at her reflection in the dark glass. Meg, 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 she said, walking up closer to the surface. You certainly had an interesting life. Do you think you'll like living here with me? We can be working women together. Just then, a magnificent thunderclap shook the entire building, followed by a sudden whoosh of oncoming rain that blew a chilly breeze through the door. Nora rushed to slam it shut as a few dead leaves, leftovers from the previous fall, blew in. When she turned back, a broad, flat face, surrounded by a mane of curly red hair, leered back at her from the surface of the mirror. Nora screamed and bolted back out the door, slamming it shut. Standing under her awning, shivering in the summer rain, she peered back through the front window of her studio. Nothing. Okay, clearly I've heard enough ghost stories to scare myself tonight, she thought. Deciding against a drink, Nora caught her breath and went back inside to retrieve her purse and phone to summon an Uber. She turned on every light in the studio and left them on overnight. This is the end of chapter three. Be sure to tune in next week for the next chapter of Looking Glass Theory. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you. <laughs>